choosing this podcast for the BJSM community, and I'm delighted to be speaking with Lorimer Mosley. Lorimer, thanks a lot for being on the call. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your chair um, in neurosciences and being the foundation chair of physio at the University of South Australia. There's been so much happening in the field. One of the the things that I often hear is people are confused about the types of pain issue. Can you start there for us, please? So we still have this um, this difficulty of, of labelling pains that, that don't seem to be nociceptive or inflammatory or neuropathic. Uh, and really, I guess, we could, we could conceptualise them as uh, uh, due to adaptations or processes within the central nervous and immune systems. Uh, and I guess functionally, we could say they're, they're pains that are, are providing no protective function. Uh, they're not associated with a clear danger message coming from the tissues. The, the, the problem that we hit in this push to categorise people is that uh, once we get, well, actually, there's almost no situation in which there's a pure type of pain. We get adaptations within the central nervous system within minutes of a peripheral injury. Uh, and a, a supposedly simple nociceptive event has always got uh, influences from within the central nervous system and the immune system at play. So uh, there are a lot of challenges facing this push. I can see the merit in it, but the, it's difficult for us as clinicians to be able to untangle it. So if, you, if we were to take a clinical example, someone's sprained their ankle, uh, you know, they've, they've had a, an injury of the anterior talofibular ligament, a week later they're mechanically sensitive on walking, uh, they're mechanically sensitive to, to pressure from the physio in an area, you know, maybe the size of a, uh, of a small saucer, uh, cup and saucer, saucer. Uh, then we, we know that there is almost certainly uh, adaptations within the central nervous system because we, we can't explain that widespread mechanical hypersensitivity otherwise. Uh, so we would conclude that there, well, there's a clear nociceptive event that's occurred, so they've got some nociceptive contributions. We would also conclude that there are central changes. And then we would want to understand the patient. We'd, we'd want to understand, well, what, what are your expectations of recovery here, what all that sort of stuff that we put in the contextual basket or the psychosocial basket. And on the basis of that, we make a clinical decision uh, on how best to, to treat this person. I don't think we we are spending our whole time trying to force them into a nociceptive box or a, a non-nociceptive box or a neuropathic box. It's pretty hard to have neuropathic pain without central changes as well. So, you know, the, the reality is that most people are mixed presentations and, and as soon as most people are mixed presentations, the idea of putting them into boxes uh, becomes pretty problematic. Now, in the clinic, you took the ankle example and shared that with us, and I've liked one of your examples I've heard before about the sunburn, where your skin feels more sensitive under the shower after a sunburn. Why don't mm. you say what a clinician might do to use these understandings of pain types when they see a certain type of patient? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's really the important question, isn't it? And and that reference to sunburn is a is a really good example of peripheral sensitization. So that's an, a change in the in the firing properties of primary nociceptors. 
And I think it's great to actually understand how that works. And we now have a pretty good understanding of, of the role of inflammatory mediators that that don't activate nociceptors. That's that's an important thing that that is, that is often misunderstood. Inflammatory mediators don't activate nociceptors. But what they do do is change the sensitivity of nociceptors to other stimuli. Now, so the, the sunburn example is you know, there's, there's inflammation in the, in the skin that you don't feel until you have a warm shower. And that warm shower is now sufficient to, to trigger nociceptive barrage and it really hurts. Um, so that's peripheral sensitization. And uh, the, the clinician can apply that exact principle that peripheral sensitization is, it will make tissues heat sensitive. So if you think there is uh, inflammatory drivers and you're confident that you can heat the tissues of, the, of that area, then that's a way of differential diagnosis or differential uh, mechanistic diagnosis, that if, you, if you're confident that you've heated the tissues but they're no more sensitive to mechanical input, uh, then that would be a little tick against your hypothesis that there's peripheral sensitization. Mechanical sensitivity is, is much more tricky because mechanical sensitivity can be mediated by changes within the dorsal horn uh, of the spinal cord. And the dorsal horn is just, it's just magnificent yeah, in its evaluative capacity. Uh, there's a fellow called Bob Kogel who works at Cincinnati, outstanding basic scientist, and uh, we, we discuss these things uh, at various times. And one of his excellent observations of the spinal cord is, is that it has massive computational capacity. And we can use that clinically by looking at the spread of pain. Uh, how has the mechanical sensitivity spread? Has it, has it spread along a peripheral nerve distribution? Has it spread along a segmental distribution? Uh, or has it, has it spread in a regional? Or perhaps it's even spread in a, in a, cortic, a cortically predictable fashion. Now, we, you know, obviously we can't go into the nuts and bolts of that in, within this context, but suffice to say that understanding how the spinal cord works, how it really works, it's not a relay station. It's not like we've got a primary nociceptor communicating with a spinal nociceptor. That's how I used to teach it up until five years ago. Uh, but it's not like that. It's more like we've got brain matter that stretches all the way down the spinal cord, and, and that brain matter will give reasonably characteristic patterns of pain spread and, and pain behaviour uh, that can inform the astute clinician about where they should be putting their, their efforts in treatment. Uh, so, And we haven't even started to think about the brain yet. We wanted to talk about two things in our planning. One was understanding the spinal cord changes, which you've just started on, that it's not a relay station and it's doing a lot of com complicated powerful things and we wanted to talk about central sensitization so why don't you drill down on the t the, which one of those you think is logical next and paint that picture for us with a clinical scenario the the advent of central sensitization as a thing was based on a, a lot of research in animals that showed a, a shift in the stimulus response profile of spinal nociceptors so what that means if if you can picture in your head the, the primary nociceptor coming in from the tissues of the body into the dorsal horn and the way we used to understand it is that that has a synapse with another neuron 
which projects up into the thalamus. Uh, and that neuron would be called a spinal nociceptor because it was supposedly being fed or synapsed with a primary nociceptor. And the original understanding of central sensitization was a shift in the profile of that synapse so that you needed less input from the primary nociceptor to trigger a response in the spinal nociceptor. The way we might articulate that to patients would be, you know, the alarm bell nerves send a message into the spinal cord and the messenger nerve is oversensitive and sends a danger message earlier to the brain. So that was central sensitization. The, 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 potentially the tragedy of, of us adopting that with such vigor is that that process does not explain the vast majority of persistent pain cases. Uh, and, and this realisation led... You know, the, the grand poobah of central sensitization, Clifford Wolf, to write uh, a really important paper in 2014 uh, where he articulated, and it might have even been titled, you know, what should we call upregulation in the central nervous system? Because central sensitization doesn't explain stuff. Uh, so the, the idea of what central sensitization was changed to be really to be increased sensitivity to noxious stimuli that's not explained peripherally. So now the brain is involved, the descending input from the brain to the spinal cord is involved, the immune system is involved, your beliefs are involved, your context is involved. So, so what, what the new understanding of central sensitization is suggesting is, is that all pain uh, is dependent on on inputs or uh, factors from across a fully biopsychosocial spread. Uh, so effectively, what it's saying is is that we are pain is truly biopsychosocial, and uh, the idea now of central sensitization is is really problematic because. Uh, well, is it problematic? It's maybe the new understanding of central sensitization is, in my view really just an understanding of the biopsychosocial model applied to pain, not just to how people respond to it. Uh, and understanding that, I think, from a biological perspective, requires us to have a framework to make sense of how the brain works. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years trying to conceptualise that framework in a way that, that we can apply clinically. Uh, you know, for example, if you, you mention a clinical scenario, uh, let's say we've got a, an, an athlete who uh, a year ago had a hamstring injury, missed seven or eight games from that, uh, did a pretty solid preseason this year, towards the end of preseason feels a, a twinge in their hamstring. Uh, we get that scanned as all these professional athletes do, and there's you know maybe evidence of a grade one something in there, but nothing nothing very catastrophic or or bad. We can now be confident that in that athlete, the relationship between the tissue event and their pain will be different from how it was originally, and the way that it will be different is that they should be more sensitive, so it should hurt more than otherwise would, and we could call that central sensitization now because uh, it, it reflects upregulation within the system of the protective buffer. You know, I think that 
embracing all of the cues and all of the adaptation within the within the system in that athlete the the fact that they you know their their contracts running out or they uh, then they're not in the in a good spot with with their peers or maybe they're in a great spot with their peers and that will be an influence downwards uh, you know we we apply the concept of the protector meter as though you've got an internal protection meter uh, that's modulated by everything. Uh, so, and, and all that everything used to be called central sensitization or, uh, and I just, I just think that's a bit misleading because central sensitization to many people is still suggesting a dorsal horn mediated upregulation. Let's come to the hands-on, hands-off um, debate. It was a pretty big deal in certain physio circles, certain conferences. It's never right. a hands-on or hands-off, of course, but it's great to hear from someone like you on a two-minute perspective on this debate. Yeah. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not a fanatic either way. Um, I, I probably feel much more strongly about the conceptual model that is applied, whether the hands on or, or the hands are off, uh, and the interpretation of analgesia. Uh, I think that we should be very careful not to offer uh, catastrophic and uh, ridiculous theories to explain why it's analgesic. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of theories going around that are pretty convoluted structural pathology or weakness-based theories that have no evidence to support them and actually a, a fairly big theoretical rationale to suggest that it's unlikely as an explanation. So I, I guess my encouragement is always uh, to work out what's the most likely explanation for the pain-relieving effects of, of what you're doing uh, or for the motor control effects of what you're doing uh, and to avoid the possibility that you will give a conceptual model to someone such that when their pain returns, they think they're in danger. Uh, you know, things being out of alignment or stuck or stiff, we have to be careful. I think we should choose our words carefully. The, the doctors have um, a great deal of respect for, for their Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. Uh, we, as physiotherapists... All of us, whether we're hands-on or hands-off, should should also be aware of that and appreciate that the conceptual model that we give people for their pain can be helpful or harmful. Uh, and our prime obligation is is to not ignore the science and the evidence concerning the the likely mechanisms by which our treatments work. Orima, you do a lot of practical work with patients and some fantastic stories of engagement with the community. And again, in our planning of this podcast, you wanted to address this, what you describe as a shift in the questions the public should be asking. Tell us more. Yeah, well, uh, first, I guess I, I really need to respond to the the, the illusion that I, I treat a lot of patients. I don't. So uh, for the last 10 years, I've, I've worked a morning, a week, in a clinical therapeutic role, I see a lot of patients through the research that we do, and I, as you, as you identified, I, I have a, a very big part of my clinical role is in outreach and education and uh, those sorts of things. And with that in mind, yeah, the based on a lot of research that our group has done and other groups have done, uh, we are advocating a shift in the in the general public's approach to their problem. 
uh, with persistent pain. And I would argue that in 10 years it will be with all pain. Uh, and that is that, that we're trying to help people to ask their clinician for the answers to three different questions. Uh, so questions different from what they would normally ask. And the first one is, how do I know my pain system is being overprotective? You know, what are the signs that my system is overprotecting me? The second one is, what can I do to retrain my system to be less protective, if indeed it is overprotective? So what can I do to, to train it? Uh, and the third one, and this is a real clincher, I think, uh, we want people to ask their clinician, am I safe to move? And that puts a bit of impetus on the clinician to know their stuff, obviously. But these are different questions from what is often asked, and that is, what's broken? And, and uh, those sort of questions. We have pretty good mechanisms for identifying the really nasty stuff now in modern medicine and physiotherapy. Uh, and I think those three questions should drive clinical interactions. Well, that's interesting, Lorimer. Mean, very different questions, as you say. Am I safe to move, for example? What has this led you to do in practice? We think that to really get change, we need consumers driving this and, and keeping their health professionals accountable. So one of the things that we've done to do that is uh, we've developed a, an animation called Tame the Beast. And that is an animation that is targeting consumers uh, and really ends in encouraging them to ask these new questions. Uh, how do I know if my pain system is overprotective? What can I do to retrain it? And am I safe to move? And Tame the Beast, uh, I don't think it's searchable yet, but um, the secret's well and truly out. So it had well over a million views in different formats through organic sharing. So it, it clearly hits a chord with punters uh, and we want that to be a resource that that people can go to and clinicians can also refer their patients to to, to keep giving the same message uh, and and hopefully we will uh, be witnessing a, a true pain revolution that would be my my hope for this sort of thing what would success look like the fundamental plasticity of our system and the data that are piling in now show quite clearly that even people with persistent pain of many years, when they rethink and they re-engage, they can start a journey, which may be long, towards recovery. And I think that's a really exciting possibility. So, you know, the pain revolution events that we run each year here, uh, the tagline is rethink, re-engage, recover. And I think that's a very defendable tagline. It doesn't say it's easy, but... Uh, it's really, it's a paradigm shifter in my view. What would you suggest folks go to to find the next material? Yeah, well, I guess that really, it really depends on where folks are up to already, obviously. And I guess the uh, websites like Tame the Beast, which will be live soon, Pain Revolution, but there are others and we link to some of those others on that site. Um, opportunities to learn more. There are resources for clinicians to do Anything from buy a good book, and I'd like to think our books are good. Uh, we're very excited about Explain Pain Supercharged, but I have a clear conflict of interest in promoting that because I will get royalties if people buy that. Uh, there are other resources as well, right up to Professional Certificate in Pain Sciences. Our university offers that. Uh, there is some good pain science qualifications out of Edinburgh, uh, Dublin, I think, and... Um, 
Stanford runs one, University of Sydney runs one. Uh, but for the punters who just want to learn more, I would really encourage them to to keep an eye out for uh, professional development that teaches them about pain biology and what to do about it. There are a few companies that offer those things, and and just be really astute in in looking at who's delivering it and why they might be delivering it. Um, as you know, oils ain't oils is an advertisement we have on TV here, but the more you learn, the better. And the power of this information, in my view, is when it's in the head of the clinician. It's not when it's, you know, being spruced out and part of some sort of script or something like that. You know, someone's saying, oh, well, I've learned how to explain pain. I just have to recite this. That, that's not the point, in my view. The point of understanding contemporary pain science is so that all of the decisions we make as health professionals are informed by what we currently think is the closest to, to the truth. Uh, so I'd say go and learn more about the truth. And I think you were hesitating around saying that there are what we might call dodgy courses and you're being respectful and it's appropriate for you to do that as someone who's providing courses and not to... Um, trash you know other people's courses but it's my role as the editor of BJSM it's important for you to make a statement that there are you know dodgy journals out there um, predator journals that um, complete rubbish is a reasonable balanced description of them there are predator conferences where the whole conference doesn't really exist and unfortunate people there by having seen a website with people's names on them who don't even know that they're meant to be speakers or, or keynotes <laughs> and there is unreliable professional education and so the fact that someone runs a course with a website doesn't mean the content is good and we're trying to help people with that by our resources obviously like the blog and other BDSM resources we have a stamp that says BDSM approved which we don't charge for um, but it's tricky with the you know, private courses as it were such as the ones you're involved in because BJSM hasn't historically um, branded those, but I'm sure you, you'd be happy to comment on that question, saying, well, how does a clinician know what's a good cause? Yeah. Uh, well, look, you've captured everything there, really. Um, I, I would just encourage people to, when they're evaluating something, you know, word, word of mouth is good, you know, someone else has been to it and can rate it, um, you could... You can have a look at, at, you know, what is the suitability of this this person to be teaching me this stuff? Uh, what is their credibility? What are the objectives? Uh, what's the follow-up? Those sorts of things. Um, I mean, I'd, really, it's it's exactly the same scenario as, as you've pointed out for for journals, for conferences. I think the the consumer should do their homework on it. Um, yeah, but I'm not in a position to say, well, go to this one, but don't go to that one and that sort of stuff because, you know, I don't know them all. No, for sure. Um, so, look, to wrap up then, um, the social media, Lorimer, Facebook, Twitter, what's the best ones for your um, content? Yeah, well, we, we have a few outreach avenues now. So bodyandmind.org uh, is... Uh, a website to really try and cover the clinical pain sciences. It's um, we we contact authors of papers and get them to write blog posts, and when we try and help them to write in a way that people, the clinicians, can understand and and can implement. Uh, that's been going strong for a long time. Uh, you know, we we're really proud of BodyandMind.org, TameTheBeast.org, which uh, is just starting up. 
will be ready soon uh, is is probably more aimed at consumers and health professionals wanting to guide their consumers in a biopsychosocial manner. Uh, and the the big outreach event that we're working on at the moment is this pain revolution, and we've got resources on there as well. And people, you know, if if anyone wants to support what we're doing, this project to to train and mentor regionally based local pain educators, uh, that's that's a fundraising site as well. So uh, we would be stoked if people got on board and sponsored some of our cyclists who are riding 800 kilometres and through the snowy mountains to raise money for this this idea. So there are our three things there. They've all got Facebook, Twitter profiles. They do indeed. Lorimer, um, very last thing, I think this is the fourth of the last things, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, you're an optimist. You, you were, you're saying that pain can be changed. You're passionate believer in the quality of the physiotherapy profession to make a difference. I'm a fan of physiotherapy, as you know, and, and people know I'm a medical doctor, but I'm a fan, I'm a big believer in the capacity of the profession. So I want to spell that out because when the profession is being introspective and looking at things like what's working and not working, um, making changes in the professional curriculum, I see those as positives and I'm sure you do. And so I just want to give you a chance to summarise where you feel the profession's going. Yeah, thanks. Gee, thanks so much for that opportunity because uh, there's, there's a lot of times that I've been misunderstood uh, as saying uh, out with physio when really what I'm saying is physio should take this opportunity to lead. Uh, physiotherapists have a, a remarkable skill set and a remarkable knowledge set and a remarkable opportunity to engage with patients. I mean, we're, we're still, for better or worse, we're still pretty inexpensive uh, and a lot of people, particularly with persistent pain, benefit from more time. Uh, and and while our society uh, is strapped for cash, which is probably forever, physios are almost a triple threat. They've got the knowledge set, the resource set, and and the affordability to to continue in a leadership role uh, in the pain space. There's there's no doubt in my mind that physiotherapists are in a leadership role. Uh, but not all of the profession is is claiming that, uh, and I would just encourage us to really claim it, uh, uh, but earn it at the same time. Uh, I hope that is a is a sufficiently compelling closing motivational speech. You can follow us on Twitter, obviously Facebook, your favourite channels, and I think the mobile app is a great way to share the podcasts. And please encourage your friends to be aware of that if you're doing that right now the bjsm mobile app free from android and apple thanks for listening and i hope you get a chance to have an active day and you probably are safe to move so i wish you the best <laughs>